Do you consider yourself a high achiever? Smart, driven, highly successful? I am so excited to have you. My name is Julia Arndt and I'm the host of the Stress Podcast. I will help you develop your stress resilience the same way you've developed your workplace superpowers. Learn peak performance tools to thrive at work and in your personal life. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Stress, the podcast to develop your next workplace superpower. I'm really, really excited to welcome our next podcast guest to the show, and it's Pauline Boss, Dr. Pauline Boss. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I'm really happy to uh, to have you here, and we were just sharing that you are waiting, you're awaiting a snowstorm. We're having a snowstorm, just a little one, but we'll take it all. And um, yeah, I'm excited that you're here today. Yes, I'm in Minneapolis. So we also have below zero temperatures uh, with the snow. But I'm sitting here looking at the Mississippi River in the city of Minneapolis on the 10th floor. So I'm just fine. I'm just fine. That sounds great. And what have you been up to this morning before we jumped on the podcast? I had two other podcasts this morning. Oh, wow. So you are you are warmed up and ready to go then. <laughs> yes, one was mentoring and uh, one was not. So yes, I'm warmed up. <laughs> right, well, I would say let's start with the first question, which is tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been um, working on over the last few years. Well, I wrote the book, um, um, The Myth of Closure. I had started it quite a few years ago, I think in 2017, but my husband became very ill and required caregiving. So I had to put the book aside. Uh, And then he died in 2020, not of COVID, but of a stroke. And so after a little bit, I picked it up again. Uh, I was in isolation due to COVID. And I also was grieving, but I think... I think writing is my way of of coping uh, with that kind of thing. And it seemed to be helpful to me, Um, especially in addition to COVID. When you're writing, you can shape a sentence the way you want it to be. And so that's all I had control over. I couldn't control my environment. I couldn't control my husband's death. And I couldn't control not seeing friends and going out to lunch but I could control how I wrote a sentence or a paragraph. Mm -hmm. So I finished it uh, in 2021. And since then, uh, it has been selling, I think, like hotcakes. And um, and so I'm still very busy now, not writing, but interviewing. Uh Yeah, well, first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you. I know that two years can be not a long time when you're going through something like this. And then at the same time, congratulations for the success of your book. That's that's wonderful. Would you have Thank thought you. that you are, you know, that that's going to be your your next life? Well, I'm 87 years old, so I think my next life is going to be traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to Switzerland, where I have many first cousins. My father was an immigrant, and my mother's parents were from Switzerland as well. Um, and so I want to do that, and I want to do some uh, other kinds of travels to friends that I have not seen since the COVID, since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, 87. You, uh, this is incredible. You look amazing for 87. 
And well, you thank you. A lot of things for eighty-seven. Uh, well, I have to be realistic, though. Uh, I have to uh, do what they call um, your bucket list. Have you heard that term? Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> they have a really good movie about that as well. Have you watched it? But yes, they have. Yes, I yeah. have watched. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I actually just recently watched it um, in January when I was flying to Mexico on vacation, and I actually thought it was a really wonderful movie and a good reminder that you know it's never too early to start with that's true what you what you want to do you need to do it exactly i also have family i have grandchildren who are either outside or in graduate schools uh, around the country that i i'd like to visit them as well and uh my daughter is a retired physician, and I, and she and I like to do road trips together. Oh, and uh, my son also wants me to come to Colorado and travel around with him. Uh-huh. So I have a lot to do. Meanwhile, I will mentor other people to carry on with the ambiguous loss work. And I have written so many books and articles that there's enough reading material around for uh, other people to carry on the work worldwide. I believe that's happening. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about ambiguous loss and what that means? Well, ambiguous loss is uh, means an unclear loss, mm-hmm. uh, a loss that does not have any verification. Uh, unlike death, which has a death certificate and most often a body to bury, um, Ambiguous loss has no assurance of life or death. The person can be missing physically, like a soldier missing in action or somebody who's kidnapped, or the person can be missing psychologically. For example, someone who has dementia, they're here but gone. Uh, They're in front of you, but they're also gone. Uh, It could be addiction, uh, dementia, brain injury, serious mental illness, people who are here and then not here. And there are more ordinary examples of both. A more ordinary example of physical ambiguous loss would be divorce or adoption or foster care. And an example, a more common example of psychological ambiguous loss uh, could be all of us who are too preoccupied with work so that we don't pay attention to our loved ones. Or if you go to a restaurant and you see a couple out together having a nice meal, but both of them have their eyes glued to their telephones. Mm-hmm. That's psychological ambiguous loss. Mm-hmm. And would you even say heartbreak? Like when people are going through separation or... Yes, divorce? separation would be an ambiguous loss, just as divorce would be, because the person is still around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so let's start from the beginning. So when somebody that's listening right now is going through any of these types of losses right now, how, where to start, right? I think grief is a big topic, and it's a difficult topic. And how, you know, let's start from the beginning. How do you, what kind of types of grief are there? Or like, I know that there's like different stages of grief that people go through when they're experiencing loss. Well, first of all, I don't believe in stages for grief. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's the most famous for her five stages of grief, 
She denied them in the last years of her life, but nobody reads her last books. So uh, we, we still cling to them. And perhaps we cling to the five stages of grief because we think when we get to the fifth stage, we won't hurt anymore, which is um, a myth. That's the myth of closure, by the way. Uh, you, you don't get over grief. The research shows now that we live with it. We can live with it. Uh, and it's more like ups and downs and in and out. It comes back now and then. And as time goes on, it will come back less and less often. But 20 years from now, if you go to a place that reminds you of the person or even the pet that you lost, you may have a tear again, which is called normal grief. Uh, and my, my feeling in this country is that we have pathologized grief and told people who are grieving, um, you have a mental health issue. No, you do not. Perhaps a quarter of the people might have, but the majority of people grieve normally and we have pathologized it. Uh, because I think in this country, we don't like to see people suffer. Uh, we're a very mastery-oriented culture that says, get over it and get back to work. Don't think about it. Find closure. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't work that way. You live with grief. You don't get over it. Do you think grief gets even worse if we're trying to push it away and people tell us, just get over it and move on with your life? Do you feel like... It makes makes it harder to yes I do yeah it it um, it wastes time also it makes it harder and it wastes time because you're trying to get over it and so you're still at that raw stage uh, and you can't move forward with what I call both and thinking whereby you say I'm very sad because I lost my loved one. And I can move forward with my life in a new way without him or her. Mm -hmm. So that's where we have to move to. You have to both be sad and move forward. Now, there's a difference between sadness and depression. And I don't think a public knows that. Sadness is just feeling blue. You may cry and shed some tears but you can still function with your daily life. Uh, and, and you don't have self-esteem issues. You know that you feel that way because you lost someone or something that you loved. Depression, on the other hand, is a sadness so strong that you might not be able to get up, you might not shower, you might not eat, you can't function in your job, you can't take care of your children all of that, that requires professional help. Yes, that's the minority of people. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of people though, don't want to get over it. And that's what confuses them. If, if medical people, if the general public says, you need to get over this, then they feel guilty because they have not. Mm -hmm. we, need to, we need to correct that in our society. I just see in the latest People magazine that uh, Anderson Cooper again reiterates uh, that having two little children is a way to keep his original family in his heart and mind because they're, 
they're in his household around uh, his new family that he is creating now. Uh, I wrote about him in the new book because I think he's one of the only media persons who gets it. Uh, he has suffered three major losses and he hates the word closure as do I. Mm -hmm. One thing that really resonated with me as well that you were just saying is the, the normal grief. Like that, that just word normal is, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously has can have a very wide range of definition. So what what is normal grief or what is not normal grief? The, the difference between sadness and depression? Yes, uh, normal grief is sadness. But I, what you said is correct, that depending on your culture and your religion and, you know, your socialization, where you grow up, everybody... Uh, defines normal grief differently. Uh, does it include sitting Shiva? Does it include awake? Does it include ancestor worship, uh, as it perhaps Asian families do? Uh, does it include cremation or a funeral? Um, so what I say is there are many different ways to have normal grief. Uh, and but but the things they sh we should not lay upon those people is there's a timeline to get over it. That's a bad thing. We shouldn't say that. Uh, and we shouldn't. And the only the only uh, stipulation I would put on normal grief is that it shouldn't be self harming, mm -hmm. and it shouldn't harm others, such as somebody who is so angry that they're child was killed that they want to conduct retribution or shoot somebody else because of it. Mm -hmm. So self-harm or harm to others uh, would put it in the not normal grief category. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also we have to be cognizant of guilt because I think it's normal to feel guilty when someone you love dies but it's not normal to feel shame. And the difference is that in, in guilt, you say things like, I, I should have been there, I could have done better, I, you know, why didn't I say this? Those are all normal. Mm -hmm. uh, but the shame would be when you feel ashamed so much of what you did or didn't do that you feel self-loathing, mm -hmm. that you hate yourself for it. That would require, but ordinary guilt, I think we should just accept it. It's quite normal to say, I didn't do enough, or I should have done this, and why didn't I say this? And I think we should just sometimes smile at that and say it's normal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> since you've just obviously you just had this experience of grief and of losing somebody uh, two years ago, how did you, like, how was that process for you? Where you, do you feel like you were prepared? Do you feel like you could have done something to be more prepared? Always, for every death in my family I've ever had, I've, I've said I should have, I could have. Mm. Um, but, and, and with this one, I was actually there when he died, fortunate because of COVID that I was allowed into the uh, hospital with him when he had a stroke. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was fortunate. 
And that's the first time I've ever been with somebody in my family who died. They all, all the rest died when I turned my back or when I left, left the room. And so I was grateful to be present for my husband taking his last breath. Um, but I still had those little questions afterwards. But I was able to um, take them in stride. You know, I should have done this. I could have done this. Why didn't I say that? And, and just say, well, that's normal. You know, don't beat yourself up because of this. Yeah, yeah it's normal to have these kind of thoughts, right? And so um, are you, so let's say somebody did just experience a loss and they're really struggling with that. Like what, what can people do to maybe better cope with, with that grief and with those feelings that are coming up? Well, again, if it's immobilizing them, Or if there's a great deal of shame and self-loathing, they need to seek professional help, a grief therapist in their area. Um, but otherwise, I would say talk to your friends, talk to a peer, talk, go to a grief group. Uh, they're very uh, frequently in every community. They're very available. Uh, or your pastor or your church frequently has that or your synagogue or your mosque. Um, in other words, the, the uh, treatment for normal grief is human connection. Mm -hmm. The treatment for depression, clinical depression, is professional help. Mm -hmm. So for normal grief, I would say seek out a peer group of some sort. It could even be a, a group of really close friends who will allow you to talk about this. But many times our friends don't want us to talk about it because they get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So therefore, a peer group might be better. Mm -hmm. um, but find somebody to talk to. If you're ruminating a home at home alone, especially now still with the COVID, that's not good. Okay, you need to talk with somebody who's also gone through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really important one because I think When people go through loss, you know, people, you know, people are there for you maybe in the first three months after it happened, right? But then at some point, you know, they obviously just go back to their normal lives and um, they, they believe that you should do the same thing. And if you are having still periods where you are feeling extremely sad, then um, they don't, they might not be able to relate as much to you anymore as they maybe in the first like two or three months when it happened. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's really important that we know that this happens also longer times after, like, it's not just done after three months, or I even still know, like in Germany, they would say you have like one year to grieve and, you know, people yes, would wear, in Switzerland too. <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, you are, you like, they wear like black for a year and then, you know, and then like after one year, you're, you're like done with your grieving and you just need to move on with your life. But. It's and I find one thing that helps with what you're saying is if someone else mentions the name of the deceased person to you, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, or, or something so simple as I remember when my husband's name was Dudley. I remember when Dudley did this. It's very nice for me to hear his name. Mm -hmm. And uh, frequently when, when people die, Um, they don't want to bring up that name to you anymore. And it's just the opposite. 
Hmm. It's just the opposite. Uh, and if they don't want to hear it, they'll tell you. But most of the time, people stop mentioning the deceased person's name. And it's like they bury him again uh, because they do that. And we like to talk about memories. Uh, it's really all you have of the deceased person. So if somebody else has a memory saying, I remember when, um, that's a lovely thing to talk about. And other than that, friends don't have to say much. They just have to be with you. Yeah. Uh, they, people talk about the right and wrong ways to, to talk. Of course, there's some really bad things to say, uh, like they're in a better place or, uh, you know, you'll get over this. And some of those are terrible things to say, very hurtful. Mm -hmm. But mostly all you have to say is, I'm sorry. Yeah. Is it helpful, you think, to talk? I mean, you say, you know, I'm already hearing that you're saying it's helpful to talk about the disease and to share memories. But do you think there is also a point where it gets maybe too much or a person may, may talk too much, like live too much in the past instead of? It could be. Present? It could be. Um, and. And then that might be, if it's sort of obsessive mm -hmm. uh, and, and too frequent, then that would be a time that the grief might be complicated and needs some help. Mm -hmm. you, you both live in the past and you live in the future, in the present and the future. You have to do both. Mm -hmm. you, it's okay to remember and at the same time move forward with your life in a new way. Mm -hmm. And if you focus on one or the other, that's not good. <clears throat> you need to have both. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't shut the door on the past, and you, you don't just ruminate about the past. You also have to move forward with life in a new way, find new friends, new things to do, a new purpose in life. What do you do when you have a heavy day and you like Miss Dudley and your you're being sad what what do you do i sort of go with it hmm. uh i play i know exactly which music i can play that'll make me cry yeah. uh, and um one is bob dylan when the De i'll be with you when the deal goes down i don't know if you know that song or not so so i i may make it worse before it gets better just to have a good cry Mm -hmm. uh, but most that's COVID that's COVID grieving you see I was still shut down mm -hmm. uh, isolated mm -hmm. um, so I could grieve when I needed to very freely because nobody else was around and and now I think more likely as I'm starting to go out more and you know join my friends and so on more I think I think it's best to go with a bad day and and say, oh, well, here's a tear, here's something that makes me sad, as opposed to fight it, which, by the way, will make it worse. Mm -hmm. And on a bad day, I've, I like to be active because um, sinking into depression uh, is less likely if you're also moving around, uh, being physically active. Mm -hmm. So I like to even during COVID, go to the grocery store. That was that was the big thing. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you so explain change. why it is even worse to just push down these feelings and not dealing with them in the moment? 
No, you have you can't push them down. You if if you're in a place where you feel <coughs> excuse me, I'll start over. If you're in a place where you feel you can't cry at the moment, and you may push it down for a little while, but find a place rather quickly where you can let it go. Uh, the ladies' restroom or some go outside or somewhere where you can just let it go. If you push it down too long, too hard, uh, it will do bad things to your body physiologically but also to your psyche. It's not good. When, when it comes, you should let it go. And if you can't at that right moment, find a place where you can go to the restroom, go somewhere private. Yeah. Sorry, you were just cut out at the end, but yes, um, I totally agree. And I was just thinking it's, it's really beautiful to have this conversation with you because I feel like Like you said, there's people that are uncomfortable to talk about grief or, but it's such a human part. It's such a part of our human experience to also grieve and lose people that we've loved. And, um, and I think if we were all kind of maybe more open about, you know, that we've all been there, we've all had these experiences that will bring us even closer together. Well. Yes, it's it's even more than a common human experience. It's a universal. It's going to happen to you mm -hmm. sometime. Mm -hmm. uh, if only it's your parents who are growing older mm -hmm. and eventually will leave you. Um, so death and loss are around us all the time. They were especially bad during COVID. And many of those were ambiguous losses that we couldn't see, like loss of trust in the world is a fair place or loss of being able to do our daily routine or to hug the people we like, be with uh, elders who are ill in the hospital and we can't be there when they die. Um, there were many and some clear losses too, like uh, loss of um, money, loss of a business, things that could be quantified uh, And, and a death that is assured, uh, that is verified with a death certificate. Those were clear losses. And the others I mentioned were ambiguous losses. So everyone feels a bit sad right now or anxious. And I try to normalize that by saying, um, it's, it's normal to feel anxious and sad in an abnormal time of pandemic. So you need to know that it isn't you and your weakness um, that is causing these feelings. It is the context, the environment, which has been unbelievably stressful the last two years. Mm -hmm. And if we had been told at the beginning, the first month, that this would last two years, we wouldn't have been able to face it. But in the end, I think we've been very resilient. People have been very resilient. Mm -hmm. And many, many of you should pat yourselves on the back because you've come through it. You've learned some new things. You've lost some things, but you survived. Mm -hmm. And that requires a pat on the back, I think. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for saying that. 
How did you think of coining that term ambiguous loss? Like how, how did you think about, you know, writing about this and um, doing more research about that specific area? Well, there were two things that influenced it, I think, and as I reflect on it. First of all, I grew up in an immigrant family and uh, my, my father and maternal grandparents were forever homesick for Switzerland and the mountains. Uh, and they never, my uh, grandparents never learned English because they didn't want to give up the language. And I hear that today in other uh, nationalities that have immigrated. And I have great empathy for the elders who don't want to learn English. Yeah. Um, so I had that environment as a child. Of course, I didn't have a word for it. Um, but when I went to graduate school, Uh, I was studying family therapy with uh, um, uh, at Madison, the University of Wisconsin-Madison with Carl Whitaker, and then also studying over in sociology courses in theory development. And in the family therapy group, I always noticed that the fathers were angry about being there. They said it was the children were their the mother's business. Well, that was the 1970s. And that's what was believed. Fathers earned money. Mothers took care of children. So the fathers were angry about being there. And so I wrote a paper about psychological father absence in intact families. And the professor of theory development said, that's a good idea, Pauline, but it's about more than fathers. Find a more general term. Than psychological father absence. So I went home and I thought about it for a while. And that's when I came up with the term ambiguous loss, where it could be anybody in the family who is psychologically absent, not just fathers. Uh, you know, a person with dementia is psychologically absent, uh, or a mother who is addicted to alcohol would be psychologically absent, and so on. So uh, I'm grateful to that professor. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, the term uh, I came up with in the 1970s was ambiguous loss. And do you think, uh, or are there, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you, you, I'm curious to hear about that. Do you feel like there's a different way to cope with ambiguous loss than with a clear loss? Oh, yes. In fact, Grief therapy does not work with ambiguous loss. And if clinicians use grief therapy with ambiguous loss, I have found um, that people frequently will walk out of the therapy or get very angry. Grief therapy is based on the idea that the loss is permanent. And with ambiguous loss, you're not sure. Uh, you know, the person or the object you lost, like a pet, could come back. Uh, and occasionally soldiers have come walking out of the jungle after being prisoners of war. Or after 9-11, a few people were found in psychiatric wards with uh, memory loss uh, and they no longer knew who they were. And so their families and they were not connected. Of course, it's a long shot. And that's why you don't want people to wait Yeah. Uh, they need to move forward, as I keep saying, with life. It's okay to keep hoping, um, but you also have to move forward with new hopes and purpose in life. 
Uh, otherwise, uh, it can just freeze a person in place. And that is not a good thing. Yeah. Is that the biggest difference between a clear loss and an ambiguous loss? Well, there's probably a bigger one yet. And that is that um, with a clear-cut loss, with grief therapy, they primarily used a medical model of, of uh, grief symptoms and so on and preventing, uh, preventing a deep depression or preventing uh, psychosomatic illnesses and so on. With ambiguous loss, you do not use a medical model. Mm -hmm. You use a stress-based model. Uh, and that normalizes, that, that makes, we say to the person, what you are experiencing is an ambiguous loss. It is the, one of the most stressful kinds of loss because there is no resolution. Mm -hmm. It is not your fault. That's how I began with almost any nationality because it's easy to translate and it's true. Mm -hmm. You want them to know it's not their fault. They are not crazy. But the situation is of rape and torture and all that goes on in many of the countries where terrorists now use uh, disappearing people because it hurts longer than if they would kill them outright. Mm. You follow that? Mm. It's a horrible thought. Mm. Uh, but it, it will hurt the family and the community longer if you disappear people, if they're missing and you don't know if they're dead or alive, mm -hmm. than if you kill them outright. So it's become a favorite tool of terrorism. Mm -hmm. So grief therapy assumes you know the person is dead. And, and it's a good thing <clears throat> for death. But with ambiguous loss, you need a stress-based therapy. Now, a grief therapist can learn both. But you'd want to make sure they know both. Otherwise, I would see a family therapist or a social worker uh, or a psychologist. Psychiatry, psychiatrists often know it too. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about stress-based therapy? I think that's really interesting. What's, what do they do? And how do well, they they're do? trying to build the resilience to live with a problem that does not get solved. Okay. So what you have with ambiguous loss is a problem that has no solution. And it may become chronic. It may go on for a lifetime or more. Mm -hmm. And so instead of teaching them Uh, to uh, deal with their grief, you teach them to deal with living with the ambiguity, to living with solution. And in mastery-oriented countries like ours here in the United States, because we're so mastery-oriented and like to solve problems, in fact, we assume you can, we have a harder time with problems that have no solution Then, for example, more Buddhist cultures, more Eastern cultures, uh, Native American cultures, uh, for example, who believe in harmony with nature more than always overpowering nature. Uh, so it's harder for us to learn, those of us who are very mastery-oriented, control-oriented, solution-oriented, to deal with a problem that has no solution, and ambiguous loss is one. 
while I admire mastery and I do not want to fault it at all. I mean, I love, I love that we put people on the moon and something on Mars and now we're farther out into outer space. I love that. And we, we found vaccines for the COVID. Uh, we're really good at that. But I believe our culture is not a good, not as good at coping with problems that have no solutions. Dementia, for example, um, and, and uh, people who have terminal illness uh, and so on. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm giving a name to a loss that has no solution and how, how to live with it how to live with a problem you can't fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so it's all about basically building resilience. Building resilience. And there are six guidelines I had for doing that. Um, the first was to find meaning in it. Well, sometimes it's so outrageous, mm-hmm. it's meaningless, like a suicide of a child, for example. Well, meaninglessness is a meaning. It means you'll never make sense of it. Uh, it will never make sense. And so you, what you try to do then is find a purpose in it. And usually, um, many times, parents, for example, will work for that cause to prevent other families from suffering what they did. Like when my little brother died of polio in the 50s, our family uh, collected dimes for the March of Dimes uh, uh, March of Dimes group that in fact helped bring about the vaccine by the next summer after he died. So we were working to help other families because our loss did not make sense. He he uh, played football as on a junior high team one Friday night and he died the next Friday. We that never made sense how fast it went. Mm-hmm but we found purpose in it. And then the second thing is to temper your mastery or increase it depending on which culture you come from. Uh, I talked about New York and and us here in the US have a high degree of mastery orientation, but if you go to around the world, in patriarchal cultures, women and girls don't have any power. And so if their men are kidnapped by terrorists, they are in a bad space because they are neither widow nor wife. So they find, they increase their mastery by joining together in a group in the community. So all the wives with missing husbands together can make a strong statement to prevent violence in the homes they come from because they're frequently violated by the people uh, who no longer see them as neither wife nor mother. So they're sort of like a Cinderella in the family. So you need some mastery and you have to find it somehow. And that would be different in different cultures. And then then we deal with identity, which is huge. You know, who am I now that my husband is missing? Who am I now that my husband has died? Uh, And Uh, You need to, after a loss, you need to rethink that. Um, I would think the young people, who am I now after I couldn't be with my friends for my commencement after graduating? Um, So we have to take a look at that and revise it. 
hopefully in a positive way. And then ambivalence, I normalize that because there's just bound to be some mixed emotions uh, when somebody is ambiguously lost. Ambivalence is an outcome of ambiguity. You don't know if the person is dead or alive. So people frequently say, I hope it's soon over. And then they feel guilty about that because they're wishing the person dead. And you normalize that Mm -hmm. uh, because that's a normal way to think uh, when the situation is so unclear. Mm -hmm. And then the last two, attachment. You have to revise your attachment to the person. If they're missing, you may still hope to keep the relationship, but you have to do the both and thinking and say, you know, I hope to see him again and I am moving forward with my life in a new way without him. And then finally, new hope. Uh, At first I had written in the book hope, but people misunderstood and thought I was saying hope for the person to return the way they were. No, that's not what I meant. I meant hope for something new, as I already described, a new purpose in life after your loss, either a clear loss or an ambiguous loss. So those are the six guidelines. They're not in any particular order. I emphasize that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go back and forth and skip one or two and come back later and so on. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's, I think, really helpful to have somewhat of a guidance of, you know, what can I focus on as I'm going through these difficult um, emotions and thoughts. can you, I, it, it sounds like you've written multiple books, uh, Pauline. Can you share with us um, the books that you've written? Uh, yes. Um, well, I wrote some academic books, uh, really, really big doorstoppers. We won't talk about those. But <laughs> in uh, ni- 1999 was the first book about ambiguous loss. Okay. Uh, and it's, it has sold over 40,000 copies and it was published by Harvard Press. It is still um, being sold and read. It's an easy read with a lot of stories uh, and it's been translated into many languages. And then after that, uh, I wrote in 2006, Loss, Trauma and Resilience to outline the stress approach for dealing with ambiguous loss. And that's a professional book, so it's quite dense, but it has everything you ever wanted to know about what it is and how to deal with it in it that's published by Norton. And then I wrote a book, Family Stress Management uh, for SAGE, uh, about dealing with stress in general. And then in 2011, I wrote Loving Someone Who Has Dementia, a book for caregivers of any kind of dementia, maybe any kind of caregiving, really. Um, And then, let's see. And then um, in 2017, I uh, updated Family Stress Management with two colleagues. And uh, And then I started the book, The Myth of Closure, which didn't get finished until 2021. 
And so the myth of closure, just to uh, kind of reiterate that, I just want to make sure that it's clear. So the myth of closure is, is that we will have closure, right? Is that the biggest myth or are there any others? No, that's the one. There's no closure. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's a myth. And unfortunately, it's a myth that's perpetuated uh, by often some of the media, except for Anderson Cooper, as I said, uh, and and maybe by ordinary people, because we would like it to be closed. We'd like the hurt to go away. But what we don't understand is that it's a paradox. Uh, the more you push away the hurt, the longer it will hurt. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good closing closing sentence. So, um, Pauline, this was really wonderful. I think it's incredible all of the books that you've written and all of the things you've added to the world in order to help people with their grief. So thank you so much for being here today. And it was my pleasure. sharing your wisdom with us. And I wish you all the best. I hope that you will live until 120 years old and <laughs> write a few more books. And um, yeah, all the best. And thank you so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.